everyone and welcome to episode 36 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lincook and I'm your host today. And today we will be talking about the colonial education system, particularly in the Caribbean, although I'm sure parallels can be drawn to other parts of the world that Britain colonised. And you might be thinking, okay, well, why? Why is this relevant for today? Well, if you didn't tune in to BBC One's documentary Subnormal, which came out last week, if you're listening on the week of publication of this podcast, it came out on the 20th of May. Um, and it was about the educationally subnormal schools in Britain and what they did to predominantly Caribbean children, black children. And that was, for me, a really poignant documentary not only because I knew a lot of the things they were speaking about, it's stuff I've researched quite widely, um, and I have an episode on it if you would like to listen before you listen to this one, uh, called Educationally Subnormal, I think it was one of my first episodes actually, something I've always been passionate about, the education system um, of the past and of today, and I thought it was quite good to hear those accounts from the people that were impacted by those ESN schools, you know, hearing a personal story of how a racist and institutionally racist policy, such as those ESN schools and, you know, the disproportionate number of black children that were in them, impacted individual people that now, you know, 40, 50 and 60 years later are here to tell their story. Um, it was so, so moving to me and I think it was put together really well with a good range of academics um, and research backed. It wasn't just, you know, opinions or all academic work and research. It was a really good balance. But anyway, it got me thinking about the colonial education system and why education was so important to Caribbean people coming over to Britain in the post-war era and why then ESN schools and, you know, the policies that black people were kind of seeing and bearing the brunt of why that was so damning and so shocking for the Caribbean community who really did come together when we think of um, Bernard Cord's texts I think you need to listen to the ESN episode I've realized I'm going to reference it a lot in this one Um, but his text you know how the British education system made the West Indian child educationally subnormal I think I've said that wrong but it includes all those words in some order or other if you understand how that was published it had about 20 five West Indian organisations behind it, all working together because they could not understand why the state was meting out these ridiculous policies on their children and impacting their future. And now, just for context, you know, people coming from the Caribbean were not necessarily coming for money. And Gus John said this so fantastically, and he is um, an educationalist and a researcher, and he spoke on the documentary and he was saying, you know, it, it wasn't that the fact that Caribbean were coming, Caribbean people, sorry, were coming over for tons of money or to be to be really rich. You wouldn't really categorise them as economic migrants per se. I don't think so anyway. Um, however, they were coming for, in the most part, a better life for their children. You know, they had already been educated or not in the Caribbean. Um, mostly they had. Um, and we'll go into, obviously, you know, the educational provisions in the Caribbean shortly. But, you know, their children... They wanted them to have that British education. They wanted them to grow up and go on to professional jobs. They wanted them to be doctors and lawyers and all the kind of, you know, big roles that parents want for their children. They wanted that, you know, just the same as as a British parent might want that for their child. Um, And so it was quite astounding 
that it seemed as if, um, you know, educationalists in Britain and psychologists were just finding any way possible to shove their children into these quote-unquote special schools that were not for them to to thrive and because they were special or especially talented it was special in a very derogatory term um, and the schools were were dubbed ESN schools educationally subnormal schools so now enough about Britain let's transport ourselves back to the Caribbean in the kind of post-emancipation era of the Caribbean where they're still under the rule of the British slavery has recently been abolished and the period of apprenticeship that follows is ending And Britain are asking the question, you know, well, what are we going to do with these Caribbean populations? What are we going to do with these recently freed people who do not have a history of education? You know, the islands, and we are talking about islands because we are talking mostly about the Caribbean, are made up of a mix of people, former enslaved people, um, European colonisers and their families, and also um, in the latter days, um, Indian and Chinese um, indentured labourers. So the population is quite mixed racially, um, but also in regards to class. And class is a really important thing that we're going to be speaking about today, because I think often when we look at the histories of race, um, and we look at race as a big topic, we forget to look at class. And I think class and race obviously work together to be more detrimental to some than others, So it's not just a case of looking at it in a black and white sense. We have to look at the intersections of class in this case. And that is exactly what we're going to do. When I first got to England in 1951, I looked out and there were Wordsworth's daffodils. Of course... What else would you expect to find? That's what I knew about. This is what trees and flowers meant. I didn't know the names of the flowers I had left behind in Jamaica. Those were the words of Stuart Hall. And Stuart Hall was a sociologist um, from Jamaica um, that migrated to Britain, as he said, in 1951, reminiscing on his experience of education in the Caribbean. He knew about Wordsworth daffodils, but he didn't know any of the flowers he'd left behind in Jamaica. And a second account from a man called Austin Clark. I was more at ease in England, the mother country, than in Barbados. I lived the lives of those great men in the History of England book. And from a woman called Joan Ahrens. All this poor bogle and whatnot is very modern and recent. To me, it is more foreign than the statue of Queen Victoria, for some reason or other. These accounts are quite shocking to me, because, well, they're not shocking in a sense of, I didn't know this before, but it's shocking at the way that in a Caribbean island, they were learning about Britain, more so than they were learning about the islands that they lived on. And that was in regards to everything. Geography, which would have been, you know, covered the daffodils that Stuart Hall learnt about, or other flowers in Jamaica. And the history that um, Austin Clark notes. Joan Ahrens is probably the most interesting in her comparison about history, saying that Paul Bogle is very modern. Now, Paul Bogle led the 1865 Morant Bay Rebellion in Jamaica, and it was a, it was a huge rebellion, one of the biggest on the island. And that was in 1865, which obviously isn't modern. And I know she wasn't saying that the rebellion was modern, 
But she was saying that knowing this history was modern. The idea that in 2000, when she was interviewed, knowing about this was kind of, oh, now we're learning about it. As opposed to, you know, when she was being educated in the um, early 20th century. The idea that Clark was more at ease in England, the mother country. This term, the mother country, causes me a lot of stress and tension. I don't think I ever heard my own grandparents use it, but I know that my grandparents could quote Shakespeare from their schooling because that's what they had to learn. They could quote it better than me, and I was educated in England and did an English degree. That, to me, was something I always wondered about growing up, why there was such a bond to empire. And then, you know, fast forward to now, and I found this fantastic book by a woman called Anne Sprite Rush called Bonds of Empire, Um, and... I've used this uh, predominantly for this um, podcast today and those accounts, apart from Stuart Hall, which is something I'd read about before, were taken from her text, um, the chapter Schooling Britons. So I would recommend that if anybody here likes to read. And it's just so interesting what she's uncovered about colonial education, you know, the reasons for it in the Caribbean, what it was teaching children and what that meant once they migrated from the Caribbean to Britain for their own children. Um, I just find all of this fascinating because education, it really is a tool of of setting up, you know, the population you want to see in 20, 30 years as a country. As much as education is a tool to educate people and to to provide people with opportunities for the future, it is a form of propaganda. Um, Might be a bit of a radical statement, but it's a form of, you know, creating a a society and socialising the children you have to to live a certain way, to to believe in a certain set of ideals. Politically, there might be a spectrum, you know, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to grow up based on their education to be of one political leaning or a political party, but to fit in within the system of Britain if they're being educated in Britain or to fit in with the system of America if they're being educated in America. And I just think it's so interesting how the British government used education in the colonies um, in order to to kind of do that and to continue these bonds of empire so that even once empire died and, and these countries began to get independence, the bonds were still there. And I think even to this day, they are still there. I think a large majority, and I would even push myself to say around 90% of leaders in the Caribbean, presidents, prime ministers, uh, were educated in Britain or in um, America, suggesting that the trust that they have in their own now Caribbean education system is still rooted in this idea of British excellence. Um, And to be in a high place in society in the Caribbean still relies on you having a degree from, from Britain or elsewhere. Right, so thinking about then schooling in the Caribbean and the legacy of it all, I would just like to point out that for the most part, um, the education system in the Caribbean followed Britain. And so whatever was happening in Britain, um, it would follow in the Caribbean um, and similar values were kind of expelled there, obviously because it's a British colony, it's under the British rule. And so at the moment, we're talking about a time where the Industrial Revolution is happening in Britain. And primary schooling is on the increase and provisions for that um, 
following on from emancipation and a need for basic education for Caribbean people to be able to read and write and function within society. And remember I said, you know, education is primarily a tool to set up a society you want to see in the future in the country that you are running, for example. And so there was a need for basic education for enslaved people. Prior to that, you might be thinking, well, how were people educated? Well, you have to remember the majority of of the people in the Caribbean were enslaved. So any education that would have happened would have been informal. It would have probably been on the plantations or in the context of slavery done by um, the people that owned them or the families that were in charge, you know, at their discretion. And for the most part, they weren't uneducated because um, it wasn't believed to be an enslaved person's position to be able to read or write or there was no need for that. And so you have um, a class, the planter class, the upper classes on the islands um, that would have been predominantly white, European, although there was a a growing coloured and it was defined as coloured or mulatto middle kind of class of people that were free, referred to as free blacks on some islands. Um, And so these were the people that probably would have been educated prior to emancipation or in the early days um but it would have been religious groups that would have set up these primary schools um and not so much the british state however that then shifted you know post emancipation and apprenticeship to the state providing this education now the british government established a negro education grant um and it allocated it on the basis of the ex um enslaved population in each colony so they would allocate a certain amount of money based on you know the people that were now uh, former formerly enslaved um and it did favor the urban areas over the rural areas and that's where we get into some of these like contentions around class um, and some of the problems because the rural areas uh, were, would have been where the lower class people lived because it would have been obviously cheaper. There would have been agricultural workers, labourers. Um, and then in the more urban areas, they would have had better access to, as we now know, primary schooling. Um, and that would have given them better opportunities moving forwards. Secondary schools, they were slower, less expansive. Um, This is not something that was believed to be important because once you had a basic education, if you were going to be, you know, an agricultural worker, a labourer, why did you need secondary school education? That was a point. As I said, it was setting people up for the roles that they would take on in society based on the needs of this post, you know, uh, enslaved people, slavery society. And so... For the most part, if you wanted to send your children to a secondary school, you had to pay for that. They did exist. There were not as many of them, but you had to pay. And so obviously you had to be of the upper classes to pay. Now, a lot of Britons, and I say Britons meaning white British people that moved over to the colonies and had land and might have enslaved people um, and worked out there, they, for the most part, would send their children back to Britain sometimes to be educated because the secondary schooling um, system in Britain was better than it was in the Caribbean as it was just kind of growing. Um, And that would be the same for university if they were going to educate them to university level, which was obviously much less rare um, than it is today, where it's kind of for a lot of people an expectation that they will go to uni in this country anyway. Um, And so, yeah, you've got 
the British, white British people in the Caribbean that are sending their children back to school in Britain, but then some of them are actually now taking advantage of local secondary schools because it's so much cheaper to educate your child down the road than it is to send them all the way back to Britain and have to either pay for their board or pay for them to live somewhere else while you have, you know, land, a home, family in a colony, for example. Um, and so, yeah, it's a very skewed class problem of who is being educated and to what level and why. And so you have to remember that, as I've said, the educational authorities in the Caribbean, they just there was no need to educate everybody to a high level because, you know, they were just going to be labourers or they were just going to be working the land. And I just wonder, was that the same sentiment that they had in Britain when they were educating black children in the 60s and 70s? You know, was it the thought that, well, these children are only going to be X, Y, Z. We're going to put them in a box before we even know what they can achieve. Um, They've come from the Caribbean. They're probably disadvantaged. You know, they can't behave in the classroom. They're probably just going to do X, Y, Z. And I hate to go as low as saying this, but was the thought that they were just going to be in mental institutions? Was the thought that they were just going to be the prison population of the future? Was the thought that they would not do anything productive in society. So rather than waste time and money on them, we're going to put them in ESN schools, forget about them and let them live out their potential or lack of. That's how the really sad part of my mind thought when linking this idea of colonial education and ESN schools. Um, And I really didn't like going there because it's not. It's not a nice thought, especially when we can see the disproportionate, you know, number of of black boys now in Prus, pupil referral units. You know, these legacies, which we we go back to slavery and people are saying, oh, you're going to think about slavery all the time. Forget it. It's happened. It's over now. Well, no, because these legacies are so long lasting. You know, you how can you how can you possibly not think about slavery when we've just brought up the fact that it's the industrial revolution that leads to an increase in the need for primary schools and a more better educated um, society in the Caribbean and in Britain. And since we're at a juncture of slavery and thinking about slavery, I want to think about class and colorism. And you might be thinking, well, how do all these things link? We're going a lot of big words. And colorism is a practice of, I think it's an offshoot of racism. It's like the daughter of racism. Um, I think it's Lapita Nyong'o who said that first, actually. Um, let me not steal people's quotes on here. Um, yeah, so it's a... I think she says granddaughter or daughter of racism, but either way, it's a descendant. And colorism basically um, looks at the impact of not just race, but skin tone um, within a certain race um, and the discrimination that normally uh, people of darker skin tone would face within their already, um, you know, racial makeup. So, for example, colorism is a problem in a lot of communities, in the Asian community, um, in black communities and in different countries, um, literally across the world, South America. You can just think of examples everywhere. And it's an offshoot of, of racism and white superiority. And favour is normally put onto those who are closer in skin shade or tone to whiteness or their features are Eurocentric um, and in a proximity to whiteness. And so this means that in a slave society and a place like the Caribbean, the British Caribbean, you know, Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, uh, Bahamas, those countries, you have to remember that if the majority of people were being taken from West Africa, 
and colonized, they will be of darker skin tone. And it will be those people of lighter skin tone that might have been taken and enslaved that would have had preferential treatment, um, whether that be on a plantation situation and they would have been um, given a more promotion um they might have been given a role in the house um, and they might be working more in a domestic capacity than as an agricultural laborer or field hand um and so um they would have been you know at closer proximity with whiteness probably mirroring their behaviors um, and looking up to them as a standard of not only beauty um but a standard of acceptability um which was clearly the case uh, in the caribbean and so you have uh, light-skinned people being favoured. And then also, because they're in closer proximity to people like, you know, the owners of the plantations, who in the Caribbean, after the slave trade, which was a trading of people, stopped. So the supply of, of African people that were to be enslaved stopped. And it meant that they were very keen. And I will give, at this point, um, a trigger warning for sexual violence. Just wanted to give a minute for anyone that needed to turn off at that point. Um, But, you know, some women would have been raped um, and raped by a white man who would have been of European descent, of British descent, um, and their children would come out, you know, mixed race. Um, And so that would then put them in a more preferential position in society. And there is even a breakdown of of names that that were labelled for different people of different percentages of blackness and whiteness. Um, And so the lighter skinned you are, most likely the higher class you will be, not because you're light skinned. You don't just become, um, you know, a middle class because you're light, but you are probably of that class, hence you being lighter skinned. Whereas the labourers, um, the agricultural workers would have been, um, you know, enslaved people that were not given preferential treatment, not taken in the house um, and would have worked the land. And so would then have generations that were doing that. Um, and this is very clear in the education system as well. So in the similar way that in Britain, the idea of um, a class hierarchy system was being followed um, in the Caribbean colonies, the same thing was happening. And so, you know, when we think about secondary schools, less than 1% of all West Indian children received um, a secondary school education in those earlier days. Um, And a lot of these secondary schools were run by British people with religious connections. And these Victorian ideals of, um, you know, middle class values, uh, British values, quote unquote, were very important at the time and that would have been linked in with religious values um, because that was all kind of upheld as what was acceptable and what was a standard that one should um, kind of strive for and it was what middle class West Indians were striving for. Sorry to use the term Caribbean and West Indian interchangeably. Um, West Indian refers to kind of the, the British Caribbean people um, whereas Caribbean obviously is a bit more encompassing of a term. Um, some of my points are able to be encompassing um, and sometimes I'm just lazy with switching between the two words so forgive me I tend to mean only people of the British speaking Caribbean islands because that's all we're talking about today and now for the impact of this kind of policy and the kind of lack of secondary school provision in the early days meant that the middle class um, of like West Indian people actually began to grow 
And this was because of this simple cycle that I've kind of called a cycle of parents who, for example, would have had an education. They would have been fortunate enough to go to a secondary school. And it wasn't just religious um, institutions that were opening them and religious groups. It was individuals as well. But they were also providing scholarships in some cases for those children at primary school level whose parents could definitely not pay for secondary school but were gifted. And so this was, I think, a good policy because it was looking at those people within society um, or at that early age, I guess, of like 11 years old, um, who would be, you know, academically gifted enough to go on to go into secondary education. Now, I said that was a good thing in ways it is that the fact that more people are able to access a secondary school education. But again, it's a very classist policy because if, for example, you are from a very poor family in the rural areas and you are travelling, I don't know, how many hours, for example, on foot to get to school in the morning, when you then go to school, having maybe worked at the weekend on the land because that's what your family do, you are not going to perform at the same standard of someone who is of a higher class uh, status who lives very close to the primary school that they're going to because they live in a more urban area whose family do not need them to work the land on the weekends or in the evenings or in the mornings even before school you're going to perform better because your family and your home situation is just set up for you to do well academically and this is where this cycle begins and I think this cycle really shuts out poor uh, West Indian people but creates this large West Indian middle class um, of those people that would have been educated. So, for example, you've got student A who manages to get one of these scholarships because, um, you know, they've gone to a good primary school and now they've gone on to get a good job. And by good job, I mean something outside of agriculture or labour, a clerical position in a bank, maybe even medicine, law and become a doctor or lawyer, uh, for example, They see the power of education in their family because it's literally changed completely the economic standing of their family. They then, you know, marry probably someone in the same class working a similar job to them, send and have children, send those children to a school. That means that they can replicate this success or even do better. And they have more money to be able to do this, not necessarily relying on scholarships, although their children are probably more likely to access said scholarships because they could put in the extra tuition potentially. I don't know how this system works. I'm just giving kind of a crude example here. Um, And so then you have a child that is able to replicate what their parents have done success wise and potentially even go to uni if their parents hadn't. At this point, you know, universities are opening um, a bit later on. And also, you know, there's a possibility of England when we start getting to the post-war era. And so class becomes the biggest issue of entry into this cycle not colour. However, due to colourism, colour plays a factor in class. So again, it's another little cycle, really. Um, Another factor to consider that impacted poor people in the West Indies was the fact that illegitimate children, so children born out of wedlock, were not always accepted into schools due to, you know, the religious part of the school saying we want children born of, of married parents. But it was a case that poor black children were impacted the most in that because their parents were most likely to be unmarried um, due to the fact that or many factors really like affording a wedding and you might be thinking well they could have had a small wedding well no because that wasn't necessarily the desire for a poor black family Um, it might have been more a sake of convenience Um, and just because I think in the Caribbean the standard family structure 
is not as patriarchal as one might assume in all cases. Um, women tended to raise children and the extended family tended to consist of aunties and grandmas who would look after children and do a lot of child raising while parents went off to work and earn money. Um, if they lived in rural areas, then, you know, go into urban areas to work and send money back home for children and grandparents and aunts, things like that. So a lot of children would have been shut out of this education system because their parents had not been married before they were born, something that they could not do anything about um but would have still impacted them and a lot of parents didn't want their children going to school with working class children and I use the term working class it wouldn't have necessarily been the term they would have used at the time because working class kind of refers to working a type of job um it's more I think productive to refer to people as poor from rural areas um and so this kind of basically creates this cycle of of the same kinds of people being educated and benefiting from the education system and they are kind of the people actually that make up the majority of workers in the early days that come from the Caribbean to Britain Um, I think it was 95% of of women that came over in the early days were skilled workers and I think 87% of men so it would have been people that had been through this education system to secondary level that were coming over. Now, another question I had was who was teaching in these schools? Because if the majority of the West Indian population were only being educated to primary level, then who was going to teach? Now, it was actually OK to just have a primary education um, to teach in a primary school. So, yeah. I don't know exactly, and it's something I want to research more on, how much you were, how you were educated or how much you learned and, and what kind of things you learned if you only needed a primary education to then teach um, others. Um, however, the pay for teaching in primary schools was very low. So it wasn't something that attracted those West Indian middle classes that would have been secondary educated. Why would you, if you have a secondary education, settle into a career that's poor paying um, and also isn't really a well-respected field, uh, primary school education. So, you know, it didn't attract the highly educated people. They were going off to be doctors, lawyers, or in some cases work in secondary schools. But again, secondary school teachers weren't paid much better either, considering the higher level of education they would have needed. And that would have been a university uh, degree or that kind of level of teacher training qualification. And so, Primary school teaching is not really attracting that middle class um, population, but it meant that there were jobs for people that mainly only had a primary school education, um, which would have created a little bit more economic freedom uh, moving forwards. There's another racial dynamic to kind of add in here, because whilst it was the British that were setting up these schools in the Caribbean and they were in charge, they were literally in government um, and educating black people, The idea that being a black person educated in um, the West Indies, you were inferior in regards to qualifications compared to a white person that was educated in Britain to the same level, secondary level, with schools that were based on the exact same education system that was happening in Britain. Um, So, yeah, British degreeless people, so people that would have been educated to about secondary level, Um, were seen to have superior qualifications to those with West Indian secondary school qualifications. And so that meant that a lot of the teachers actually in the secondary schools were British. Even though you were supposed to have a higher level degree, um, the supply of people was just not enough. So they were tending to recruit people that didn't have university level degrees. 
Um, they would recruit straight out of secondary schools. Where if they did recruit out of West Indian secondary schools they, and train them on the job, which was a common policy, they tended to be of lighter skin. Their proximity to whiteness, colonial, um, colorism, as I've mentioned before. But those white British people that might have migrated to the Caribbean um, islands at the time, they would have been given kind of the benefit of the doubt of not having a university degree before they turned to lighter skinned people in West Indian schools. Um, so I thought that was quite interesting um, at the kind of preferential treatment of white people. Um, and also the kind of, I don't know if it's like a lack of belief in the rigour of the system in West Indian schools, even though British people had set them up. And I feel like this kind of doubt of the rigour of these schools and the doubt of their qualifications is the same reason why when you have Caribbean people from and West Indian people moving over in the post-war era, their qualifications are being doubted. Teachers are having to retrain. Nurses are having to redo qualifications because they don't trust the qualifications that they are literally administering in the Caribbean islands. Doesn't make any sense to me, but I just feel like it's like if black people are running it, it's not good enough. There must be something wrong with it. And we don't trust the qualifications that these people are coming out with. So we'll retest and retrain. It's like the IQ tests that they were doing on children in the ESN schools. Oh, we've got to check ourselves. You know, there must be something wrong with them. They must have some mental deficiency or disorder. Um, and so this kind of doubt over what's happening in the Caribbean, even though it's literally being run by British people, is so frustrating to me. Um, and it just kind of highlights, I'd say, and even if it's racism, like imperialism, the bonds of empire, all these kind of big buzzwords that just seem like the right thing to say. But also it's just a bag of foolishness, to be quite honest. Um, but yeah, don't want to leave on such a high tension point. But that is actually where we're going to end, because I just think it ties us very nicely into this point where Caribbean people are migrating to Britain um, and, you know, joining the education system, joining the working world and facing problems based on their qualifications that they would have got from home. Um, and I also just want to kind of link it back to those people. We mentioned Stuart Hall, um, Joan Arons and Austin Clark, whose kind of testimonies of what they learned in the British education system in the Caribbean. They were not learning about Barbadian history, uh, Jamaican history, Trini history. They were learning about Britain. They were securing the bonds of empire. That's exactly what was happening. And it made for the class of workers that were going to find themselves migrating to Britain in the post-war era. They were going to find themselves serving um, Britain in World War One and World War Two and any other conflict in between or after. You know, that's what this education system was there to do. It was not necessarily there to give people economic freedom, although it did in turn, which we are thankful for. But yes, that's all the points I have about the colonial education system today. With a big thank you to Anne Spry Rush's uh, Bonds of Empire, a fantastic text I would definitely recommend. Um, and there will be reading material in the social media links this week um, because I think it's an, a topic that definitely must be read about more widely, I think, to understand. I think the treatment of black people in the education system in Britain up to today. Um, definitely so thank you all for listening please do like and follow us on the relevant social media pages on spotify or whatever platform you listen to please give us um a rating and a review it really helps us jump up the search engines and and to allow other people that might be browsing to find this podcast um really i'm trying to push this podcast and and you know make sure that 
the right people are listening um, to these to these histories that I feel like are so important to be taught. So thank you for listening to this episode and always have a wonderful week. Bye.